Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, and for Stephen Henderson. A little later in the show, we'll take a look at what's going on with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan's decision to turn away the first batch of Johnson & Johnson vaccines here in Detroit and his decision since then to accept future allocations. Uh, But first, it's now been four months since the November election. It's hard to believe that much time has passed, but we are still living through the largest disinformation campaigns targeting our electoral system in recent memory. Some Republican officials still to this day refuse to accept the results of the election. Many more continue to cast doubt on the processes and the integrity of the system, even if they won't go as far as saying that any problems that may have existed would have changed the results. But as of last week, the state, along with local clerks, have finished 250 audits of the election. Let me repeat that. 250 audits across the state. What did those audits tell us? Well, exactly what election officials and independent experts have been saying for months, that this was the most secure and well-administered election we've ever seen here in Michigan. And now with all the available evidence, it's pretty clear that anyone who tells you differently is lying to you. Still, millions of people in this country falsely believe otherwise. Here to talk about the election, the audits that verify its accuracy, and what happens next is Michigan's top elections official, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Secretary Benson, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning. Good to be here, Jake. Good to see you on the show. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And of course, before uh, we get into these audits, I did want to start in a different place because We're going to be having a number of discussions on the show this week about the one-year anniversary of the first confirmed case of coronavirus here in Michigan. That's tomorrow, the anniversary. Uh, We at WDET, we we all thought about you, Secretary Benson, when that immediately came to mind when we were thinking about that day one year ago because it was the night of the presidential primary. Uh, and we were we were all just, I think, getting results at that time. And if we remember correctly, we were expecting you to make a public statement on the election. And when we that's when we suddenly heard that the governor would instead be holding a press conference. Uh, and this was, I think, around 10 o'clock at night. And uh, we knew because of that late hour that something was probably up. And of course, that's when she announced the first case had been confirmed. So I, I was curious, you know, what are your memories of that night and what you experienced as this new reality dawned on us. And of course, it happened to be one of the busiest nights of the year for you, no less. It was. It was also the first statewide election, not just that I administered under my administration, but administered under the new rules or rights for citizens, the mm-hmm. right to vote absentee without a reason, the right to register to vote and vote on election day. And so um, it was a really um, important day for our democracy in that regard. And uh, we went into the day intending to, and we did, learn from a lot of the voter behaviors that day, where we're seeing a lot of people register and voting, and so that we could basically begin preparing for November. And the polls closed at 8 o'clock. I did a press conference at about 9.15. Mm-hmm. I remember it very clearly. And it was a very celebratory one because we saw a lot of people vote. We saw very few issues, what issues we saw, which were some crowds and long lines in six areas around the state where particularly students were showing up and, and registering and voting. All of those were things we could manage and improve upon for the fall. And so we felt really good. In fact, I think one observer said, we can't believe this is the first uh, statewide election we'd administered. And, uh, and, and then we did the press conference. We announced 
you know, the, the unofficial results, I believe, or whatever was available at that time. And then I got back to my office. My chief of staff walked in and said the governor is about to announce the first two cases of coronavirus. Wow. And everything changed because my mindset was now how do we learn and prepare for the rest of the three elections we have this year, May August and November, from what we learned today, and little did I know we were not done learning yeah. <laughs> about what the new world would look like. And from then on, we began preparing to manage elections in the midst of a pandemic, which I do think at the end of the day, I'm really proud that our clerks did so well, despite so many changes uh, throughout the year. And it's amazing to think about that sort of 12 to 14 hour period that sort of set the stage for everything that we're talking about today with you know, mm-hmm. the November election and everything we've gone through in the past year, but also just the 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 ways that that all allowed for um, this this false narrative in many ways to to take hold of the election. And uh, also mm-hmm. just the ways that we've opened up, uh, you know, the ability to vote for so many people in a positive way. But uh, I did want to talk about those 250 audits that mm-hmm. uh, the state and uh, local clerks just completed. Uh, talk t- talk about what kind of audits uh, we're talking about and, and what did they tell us? Well, as you m- mentioned, they were the most audits done in state history. And uh, it was they were done, they were conducted by more than 1,300 Republican, Democrat, and nonpartisan clerks, as well as the State Bureau of Elections, all across the state. And so uh, what they essentially did was examine the paper ballots, uh, examine the machines and the technology, any technology used, and look at the procedures that clerks followed to affirm that everything was by the books and affirm the results of the election. And that's exactly what uh, they did find, uh, that they, um, you know, even in in some places, hand-counted votes cast for president on more than 18,000 ballots that were randomly selected all across the state. And that, again, affirmed that those ballots and and their by-all ballots were accurately counted by our tabulation machines. So it was really important to, again, provide more evidence and data to underscore the accuracy of the election. And at this point, uh, I can go into more details about the auditors in Detroit and the auditors in Grand Rapids and Livonia and Sterling Heights. But the bottom line is the, the evidence is now abundantly clear that the results of the election were accurate. And, and we are encouraging and I'm really calling on all leaders to acknowledge that because it's an important precedent to, to set. No matter who wins a particular election, we all need to look at the facts and data and rightfully have faith that the election was fairly and accurately conducted. And that's what this evidence uh, illustrates. And, and one of the storylines that we keep hearing about to this day uh, about the election is, is about Antrim County. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the state has also now conducted a risk-limiting audit in, in Antrim County, uh, where there was, again, this controversy and a whole lot of inf- misinformation about vote counting there. What did that mm-hmm. audit look uh, look at, and what did that find? That was one of the first ones we did, precisely that, because there was essentially a it, it, it emerged some sort of political decision at the national level made to amplify Antrim County. And, uh, and, and so we... Um, we had officials from both parties or representatives from various different uh, stakeholder groups audit every ballot cast for president in Antrim County. And they found that the Dominion machines used there had been extremely accurate. And we you know, had a live stream of the audit on <laughs> that anyone could watch it uh, and affirm that everything was being done well and transparently. Uh, and then we posted the results as soon as they were um, ready. And I think the as soon as they were done, and, and you know, I think 
what what also when we talk about 250 audits like that one all across the state, what people also need to know is that one, this is not only more than have ever been done before, but this has been done with clerks and our state bureau of elections with no additional resources. Mm. There have been no additional resources provided. It's taken a lot of time because of that, because they're all working with limited staff and and resources. So it's one of the things we asked the legislature for. Um, but um, but I think you know while this um, was an extraordinary election cycle requiring this extra effort, uh, we do need to know that there's a lot of things that happened last year that aren't sustainable unless we change some laws and provide some more support for our local clerks. And, and this is one of them, that audits are important and we need to make sure we have an infrastructure to support them because we do want to consistently affirm uh, the accuracy of the results of the election and identify places for improvement for next time. But at the same time, we need more partnerships, uh, particularly from those who have been calling for these types of audits uh, to provide resources and invest in, in our ability and the ability of clerks to conduct them in this robust way. Yeah. Well, you note some some sort of irony there that, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, they're the same people who were so vociferously calling for audits uh, right after the election and even going to court and suing for audits, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that that if, if there doesn't seem to be support for the resources and, and the actual audit processes that, that you're actually calling for now, it, it's it's kind of a head scratcher. It's it is and it's sort of it 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 feeds into what became a sort of more abundantly clear throughout the past four months that this was a political strategy, this was a PR strategy designed to, you know, get people riled up to you know, it very much culminated in January 6th, but bit, get people um, feeling that somehow the their their vote had been taken away from them when there actually wasn't true. And I think that's really the heartbreaking thing about all of this to me. I mean, we'll continue to stand up to the scrutiny as we've done um, prior to Election Day and in the months that followed and demonstrate that the results of the election were were clear, secure and accurate. But we also have to think about all these folks who've been lied to by people they trust, by leaders uh, who they support, and really encourage them to think critically about what they're hearing, make decisions for themselves, look at the evidence, uh, and really shame on any leader who would lie to their followers about what is very clearly the truth about this election. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm talking with Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. We are talking about the November election, the 250-plus audits that the state and local clerks have conducted and finished now, affirming the results and affirming the processes in place for this past election. And we want to hear from you. How confident are you in the results of the November election and the processes in place to make sure our elections are secure, fair, accurate, and accessible? Uh, What do you make of all the false conspiracy theories flying around about the election? And how do you think we should improve our elections in Michigan? You know, how can we do an even better job of making sure that everyone is is able to cast a ballot and feels confident that their vote will count? Of course, the number is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, and Secretary Benson, uh, you know, you you also spearheaded this first statewide risk-limiting audit. Uh, it was the first one ever here in Michigan for this election. Uh, so remind listeners again uh, what that statewide risk-limiting audit did and what that showed. Yeah, risk-limiting audits are currently the, the most statistically 
uh, accurate and reliable way of auditing a system of paper ballots, millions of paper ballots like ours. And what they do is they take a percentage of those paper ballots and they randomly select them all across the state and, and affirm that they were accurately counted by the machines. And it's a way of of thereby extrapolating and ensuring every paper ballot was accurately counted by uh, the voting machine. So in Michigan, uh, the statewide audit, which was uh, an exercise that we did after the March election as well, uh, essentially hand-counted votes cast for president. And they randomly selected more than 18,000 ballots all across the state and found, indeed, those ballots were accurately counted by the tabulation machines throughout the state. So it, it again, it was you know an additional affirmation of of the of the tabulation and of the count. And then the other important thing that these audits did was look at some of the issues that emerged in the canvassing, particularly in Wayne County, where there were out of balance precincts. Basically, there are sometimes more. More, more names on a voter roll than ballots distributed or things like that, just small discrepancies. And uh, they were able to explain 83% of those discrepancies, which was up from 27% in November, which really underscores, again, with more time and attention and people and resources, we can actually continue to affirm the accuracy of the election and, and bat down conspiracy theories but we need everyone working together to really support those officials on the front lines who are doing this this very gritty work and uh, make sure they have um, the space and the time to do their work and do it accurately. And again, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Uh, we have a caller on the lines that has a question about how these audits work. Uh, John and Warren, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. Thank you, guys. Uh, my question, I have a couple questions that have to do with the, with the auditing, because I, I get how the auditing basically proved that the votes that you have, the ballots you have, were counted okay, et cetera. What I'm curious about is how do you know that, A, a ballot wasn't swapped out for something else, and, B, you know, if all you had was a stuffed ballot box, it seems like you would count it again just as stuffed. It doesn't seem like any of your audits would have proven that, you know, that the ballot boxes were not stuffed. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, Secretary Benson, uh, go ahead. Yeah, those are important questions. And I think two things. One, there's uh, security protocols in place when a ballot is received and uh, to affirm, even if, the, you know, if someone were to, quote unquote, stuff a, a ballot box or, an, you know, one of the drop boxes, none of those ballots would actually be counted unless they were in an envelope with a signature on it and that signature matched the voter file signature. And so there's, um, you know, protocols in place leading into the election to ensure before a ballot even is counted the first time that it's validated as a valid ballot. And remember, no one can even get a ballot unless they sign a application uh, or verify their identity uh, in a way that affirms that they're an actual voter. So there's, a, you know, a couple of those security protocols in place. And on the other end, the audits also do include a review of the procedures that clerks used to affirm that everything was followed. And that's really where when we're talking about hundreds of 250 audits, a lot of those are on the local level in Detroit, in Livonia, in Grand Rapids, where they're actually uh, opening up the books and looking at the procedures that were followed in that regard to affirm that indeed they all were followed so that we can have faith that the ballots, once tabulated, were valid ballots. I also want to go to Mark in Detroit. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. And I just have one simple question. 
first and foremost, I believe that candidates and campaign committees should have to pay when they falsely claim for one reason or another, like in this particular case, political reasons and PR reasons, that elections were fraudulent. Uh, is there a law in Michigan that provides that campaigns or uh, campaign committees and uh, candidates have to pay when the, uh, for the count and recount of elections uh, when this uh, happens? Yeah, Mark, I appreciate that. Uh, Secretary Benson, um, you know, what, is, what about this idea of forcing candidates to pay for audits if they demand them? Well, there's two things there. One, we don't have a law that makes it illegal to intentionally lie or, or, or deceive voters about their rights in a way that impacts the elections. And that's one of the things I proposed, a Deceptive Practices Act, to really get at the narrow set of circumstances in which people know they're lying, they're intentionally lying with a goal uh, and the effect of disenfranchising voters or otherwise in, impairing uh, the electorate's ability to, to vote or participate. So that's one thing I'd like to see uh, for protection and accountability moving forward. On the recount uh, side of things, notably, there were no uh, presidential campaigns that requested a recount. There were in other states, like Wisconsin, but nothing here. And that was something that does ensure that every single ballot is looked like is, is looked at. And in times where there are these wide margins, there are requirements that the campaigns do pay for those recounts. Uh, so there is some some level of of um, skin in the game at that point, and perhaps that was why there were no recounts requested. But nevertheless, I, I do think there needs to be more accountability moving forward for those who would intentionally try to disrupt the process, uh, lie to voters about their rights uh, in a way that really harms democracy in the, in the um, sort of near term and ultimately in the long term. And, and before I let you go, I want to kind of double, you know, uh, f- tap into that a little bit more about the, I'm sure, frustration that many elections officials are feeling right now with the, the, the uh, you know, with more and more evidence and data coming out that sort of affirm the results of the election and the processes in place. It, it just seems like no matter what data or evidence is out there, still millions of people, including public officials, mm-hmm. uh, will continue to push this false narrative that this election was somehow botched or that, you know, and, and they're in, they're currently proposing new laws across the country in some places to make it harder to vote, uh, using that false narrative as an excuse to do so. So how do we combat that? Because it seems like giving more evidence and data just it doesn't seem to be enough. Well, I think two things. You know, One, yes, this quote-unquote big lie is now manifesting itself in a rollback on the very laws that people and the very rights that people uh, embraced in this past election and, and, that's, and the reasons we saw such high voter turnout and engagement. So uh, this is something we've seen throughout history. Every time there's a lot of people participating, there's oftentimes by those uh, who who don't like that to roll back uh, and and try to restrict the vote? We can fight that uh, by continuing to, as voters, uh, one call for you know call, call those folks out and try to stop those laws from being passed. But then, in in my view, if people make it harder to vote or people do make it harder to vote, that does uh, require us to um, you know, work even harder to make sure, and us being the, the sort of all of us who want to see a lot of people voting on both sides of the aisle, to work even harder to, to do that 
and to remember that here in Michigan, the reason why we're not seeing that is because voters demanded that they have a right in our state constitution to vote absentee without a reason and to be able to register to vote on Election Day and uh, and, and cast their ballots. So those rights are now in our constitution because voters put them there. And what that teaches us is that the voters really do have the greatest power still in our democracy. And so voters in states that don't have those rights can 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 follow Michigan's example uh, to push for them in the way that voters demanded. But know that throughout history, we've se- we've seen it's been voters demanding their rights and demanding an expansion of the vote and a protection of the vote that has ultimately led the way to ensuring the vote is protected. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jake. All right, we'll talk about Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan's recent refusal of the first shipment of the Johnson & Johnson vaccines after a short break. We'll also talk about his reversal since then, saying the city will accept future shipments. Chad Livengood of Trains Detroit Business joins me next on Detroit Today.